Hey, glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke 10. If you're on the outside aisle, if you'd reach under your chair, there should be a brown basket there. If you grab a, a basket and pass it down, if you're a guest with us, if you pull out one of those brown cards and fill it out, there's a welcome room on the right as you're leaving. Somebody will be in there if you would um, stop in and hand them that card. It'll give us a chance to say thank you for being here. You've got some announcements on the back side of your bulletin deal outline thing. You can look at those. We're going to jump right in. I'm sure you're upset to not have any announcements this morning. So last week, Luke 10, we're talking about this idea. What does it look like to follow Jesus? That's the key theme from chapter 10 through chapter 19. And we said last week to follow Jesus means to be sent by him. So if we're going to follow, then we need to know we're going to be sent. All of us are to live our lives as missionaries. And we see Justin and Elizabeth, we may put them in this special category and say that's what it is to be a missionary. To pick up your family and move across the world and to be in some area where there are no Christians and there are no other Christian workers. And that, that is absolutely a picture. It is not by any means the only picture. And they would tell you the same thing if they had a chance again this morning. To be a missionary is to recognize God has sent each one of us to a particular people or a particular place to do particular things. And every one of us, as his followers, if you're following Jesus, then he has a calling on your life to send you out as a missionary. You heard some of that from Dan today, even speaking about going to Auburn. It doesn't mean that you have to move. You may move, but that doesn't mean that you have to. That's just a transition in life, and it's easy for us to recognize. But I don't want you hearing us say that if you're sent, it means you're going to have to move. That's not necessarily the case. The beginning is just recognizing where has God sent me now, and most likely it's where you are. You're not there by accident. So last week we looked at a couple of uh, dynamics or elements. What does it look like to be a missionary? Again, that can be intimidating. And we talked about what do you smell like because it's easy to smell. Do you smell like sweat? Do you smell like smoke? That's your circumstances. Sweat is your effort. Or do you smell like Jesus? Just Being with him will cause enough internal change in you that people will take notice. And you won't really have to do anything. People will ask you questions. People will begin to open up to you. And then the next stage requires a little more uh, boldness on our part. What has God given to me? And then what does it look like for me to give that away to other people? That's the essence of what it means to live your life like a missionary. It's to recognize the grace that God has given to you, whatever that is. For some people, it has to do with relationships. Other people, it has to do with business. It has to do with finance. It's it's scriptural truth. Like, what are the thing? What what what's the grace that God has given to you? And then, what does it look like for you to begin to give that to other people who are in your circles? Uh, This week, we're going to look at the most famous parable, my opinion, most famous parable Jesus ever told, the Good Samaritan. And I want you to look at it through the lens of living your life as a missionary. So, verse uh, twenty-five, chapter ten. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So, uh, heart is not necessarily pure in this questioning. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your strength and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So right there, we've got the setup. This guy comes up to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And then Jesus turns it back on him. You're the expert in the law, so why don't you tell me? How do you understand it? You, you, you know the Old Testament. Tell me what you're seeing there. Well, what I see is love God and love people. Love God with everything I've got and love people the way I love myself. And Jesus says, that's right. You just keep on doing that and you're going to be fine. And then the man asks this question in verse 29. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We talked a few weeks ago about people who have a fence-building mentality and people who have a well-digging mentality. This is a fence-building question. He wants to know where he can draw the line. If I'm responsible for loving my neighbor, then let me figure out who my neighbor is. And if you're not my neighbor, then I don't have to love you. You see what he's doing? He's trying to limit the, the amount of people he's responsible for. He's trying to shrink the, the pool, so to speak. He's going to build a fence. Let's figure out who my neighbor is. A well-digging mentality says, God has given me good things. There's The Holy Spirit lives within me. God has given me grace. And anyone who I come into contact with who's hungry or thirsty, they, they can have it. it, it they can have, I'm not looking to, to exclude people, to push people out. I'm not looking for excuses to not engage people. I'm not looking for excuses to not love people at all. I'm, I'm not asking who my neighbor is. And you'll see as Jesus answers the question, that's his perspective as well. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave, him to the in- and gave them to the innkeeper. So that was enough for about two months' worth of care. That's how much he paid for in advance. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? So let's go back. Here's the question. Who is my neighbor? That was the question that prompted the story. And here's what Jesus says to the man. And to which of, the, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? You see what he did there. He moved the target. The lawyer says... Who is my neighbor? Jesus says, to whom are you a neighbor? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Many of us have heard that parable dozens and dozens of times. And so it it loses its effect. It's not that powerful to us. It's not really shocking. Honestly, if I said, are you challenged by the parable of the Good Samaritan? Most of you would say, not, not really. Part of the reason is we don't get the cultural conditions of the day, and that, that's okay. Uh, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. They'd hated each other for hundreds and hundreds of years. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus wanted to pass through Samaria, and he sent some guys to in, like an advance party to ask for permission. And the Samaritans said, they said, no, you can't, no, you can't come through here. They didn't, the Samaritans and Jews just didn't like each other. The Jews saw Samaritans as kind of these religious mutts, half-breeds, and there's a lot of hostility Going both ways. And so when you read this story, you've got a guy, he's a Jew because he's coming from Jerusalem. He's coming down the road. The road is very dangerous. He's jumped, beaten, robbed, left for dead. And then when you think, as you're listening to the story, all right, we've got these two guys coming from Jerusalem, a priest 
and then a Levite. A Levite's kind of like a worship leader. Both of them would have been considered holy men, for sure. They were fellow Jews. You would think, if anyone's going to help this guy, it's going to be them. Same race, they're both Jews, and these guys are better than a regular Jew. They're, they're holy, they're righteous people. So if they see somebody who's hurting, they'll do something about it, and they don't. They actually pass by on the other side of the road. And then a Samaritan comes, and he stops and helps. And if you're a Jew and you hear that, you're going nuts. Hatfield and McCoys or whoever the people that you think are the least likely to help each other, that's who's helping this guy. And at great risk and cost to himself, he gets off his donkey, he puts the guy on, he takes him to an inn, pays for a couple of months of care, and then says, I'll be back, then I'll take care of everything else. So what Jesus has done to this lawyer is he said, you're trying to build a fence. You're trying to figure out who's in and who's out. You want to know who you've got to love. I'm going to flip it and say, who are you loving? To whom are you a neighbor? That's a well-digging mentality, not a fence-building Mentality. Now, I'm going to warn you, so this should, I'm sorry, I'm going to apologize is what I'm doing. I'm not warning you. I'm apologizing you in, to you in advance. This isn't neat for me. I've been wrestling with this parable all week, and I haven't gotten to the other side of it. So you're getting some, it's a little like um, gumbo. Lots of stuff mixed in, and you've got to pull the okra out if you don't like okra. Find the, find the stuff that you like. So that's how it is. So I'm just telling you in advance, this isn't nice and neat. That hurts me more than it hurts you, believe me. So I'm I'm thinking about this parable and the fact that it doesn't challenge me. And it would have been incredibly challenging in the moment for those guys to hear it. The lawyer, he's going, he's convicted. He can't even answer the question to whom he says, who's a neighbor to this guy. He can't even say the Samaritan. He says the guy that showed him mercy. He can't even name him. That's how shocked he is. And how much it offends him that the Samaritan is the hero of the story. And I think about that with us. And if the way we apply that to our life is, if we were to see somebody beaten up on the side of the road, would we help? The answer for every one of us is absolutely. Every one of us would call 911. That's what we would do. And that's what you should do. If you drive home today, I guarantee if you see somebody, if you see a wreck, Or if you see someone on the side of the road, every one of you is going to pull out your phone, pull over first. You're going to pull out your phone and you're going to dial 911 and you're going to say, this is the situation. You may stay, you may go, I don't know if that matters. Those of you that have medical training, you probably would stop. But none of you are driving by without calling the police. Not an option for the Samaritan, not just because there's no cell phones, because there's no police. And there's no ambulances and there are no hospitals. So if he doesn't help this guy, nobody's going to help him. So I think when I think about it just in terms of how would I deal with someone who's in a who's in physical, who's physically hurt, there's no challenge there at all. But if I'm if we look a level deeper, it starts it messes me up in a lot of ways. And I think about the Samaritan and the risk that he took in helping this guy. So there's a physical risk involved for sure. He stops on a dangerous road. To help an obvious victim of crime, which puts him at risk of the same criminals. Again, there are no police, so there's not there's no sense that there's a patrol coming by. And so the robbers have done what they've done and they've left. There's no reason to think they've left the area. Most likely that's their turf and they rob everybody who comes by. And so by stopping, the guy's putting himself at risk. He obviously has money. He's got things that are tradable, oil, wine. He's most likely a businessman, a merchant of some kind. 
and he's putting himself at risk to stop and help this guy. And then as a Samaritan, he goes to an inn run by a Jewish man. And he says to this Jewish man, remember, Jews and Samaritans hate each other. He says, run a tab. Just run a tab. Here's two months worth of expenses. I'll be back and I'll pay anything. He's putting himself at huge financial risk. There's no reason to think that the innkeeper is going to give him an itemized receipt at the end and either give him change or say, here's what I did over and above. He's going to come back and he's at the mercy of this innkeeper, to be honest. And again, they they don't like each other. Huge risk physically and financially for the Samaritan to help this guy. And then I think back to us. I think back to me. And I live in a suburb. And not to get too much into the sociology, you may know this, you may not. Suburbs were created post-World War II as basically as there were places for the well-to-do, middle class, upper middle class and rich. That way to leave the city as poor people were migrating into the city. So post-World War II, rural migration from country to city because there's more opportunity. As these poor people are entering the city, upper middle class and rich say, I don't necessarily want to live with these guys. We've got enough money to go move out of town, and we can get back into the city whenever we want to. I, I live in a suburb. I have my whole life. There are good things about it, but the, the thing that... Our community is rooted in what it came out of was a desire for safety and security. In a lot of ways, even some segregation. I don't want to be around certain people, poor people. And so when I think about the Good Samaritan, I think about him coming in contact with this guy, taking a huge risk. And then I think about where I live in safety and security as a value for our community. There's a clash there for me. And I've been trying to work through what does it look like for me to say to whom am I going to be a neighbor, even if or maybe especially if it costs me something. If there's a risk involved, if I can't use my own safety and security as a filter for who I'm going to choose to love. If I can't use my own safety and security or as a dad and a husband, I'm not even sure I can use my family's safety and security as a filter for making decisions on who I'm going to love, who I'm going to engage with, basically on who gets a piece of me. If I'm a well, then anyone who's hungry and thirsty in my vicinity that I come across should be able to access the grace that God has given to me. And I can't use, if my reading of the parable is correct, and if my reading of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is correct, and you can disagree with me, I can't use my safety or my comfort or my security as a reason to say no. And that's upsetting to me because I live in a place that says safety and security is the highest value. We make decisions around what keeps you safe, what keeps things under control for you or if not for you, for your family, if you have one. That's the that's the water that we're swimming in. And I don't see that as a value in the kingdom of God. I don't see anywhere where Jesus says, love people as long as it doesn't cost you anything. He doesn't say that. When he says, be careful, it's never about physical safety. It's about our hearts. You watch out for your heart. He never tells us to watch out for our bodies. And he never tells us to watch out for our money. It's a radical thing that he's inviting us into. And honestly, I don't love it. 
it's a hard thing for me to wrestle with individually for my family and for our church. What does it look like for us to say we're available? We're well. We don't build fences. We want to be a good neighbor to everyone who we're we come into contact with. That's a hard thing for me. I, I, and I'm not to the other side of it. And so I'm putting it out there and saying, wrestle with it. Single women wrestle with that. Like, what does that look like? Safety and security is not a filter. Those of you, what does it look like? Families. Those of you that we have responsibilities, what does that look like to do that and to say, I'm going to say, good Samaritan. All right, the challenge for me, I'm going to choose to love people who I come across who are in need. Again, the, the setup of our community keeps me out of the, I don't come across people who have physical needs. Rarely do I do that. Because we're on the square, we see some. But in general, where I live... I don't come across people with a lot of obvious physical needs. So if I go to Nicaragua, it's pretty plain. All right, we can do some work here. We can build a house. We can dig a well. We can teach English. We can do things because the needs are obvious. People don't know how to read, so let's teach them how to read. The needs there are obvious, and it's easy to say this is what it looks like to love people. Living in an affluent society where we are, the needs are much less obvious. They're hidden. They're all internal. And so I, I don't know what to do about that. What does that look like for me to love someone who makes triple the money that I make and whose kid's on the all-star team and who's married to a Barbie doll and seems to have everything? For like, What does it look like for me? How do I love you? I can't see your needs. You seem to have everything. You have things that I want. So what do I have to offer you? I was thinking earlier. One of the things that we want to see in our community, we want to see people live in a rhythm, rest and work and relationship. Try to figure out what outreach around rest looks like. Like what, what do we do? Nap time? Here, come? Soothing music? I don't know. It's difficult. People are driven by money. So what does it look like to reach out on that? We're going to have a what? Bring your extra money and we're going to burn it. What do, I don't know what we're going to do. It's it's difficult. It's easy to, in some senses, hear me say this, like, hear my heart. It's easy to build a house. Like, let me build a habitat house. Let's do that. We can build it. And it needs to happen, and it's good, and it's right. This other stuff, to me, it's difficult. And when I think about my neighbors, I want to be available to these guys that need a habitat house. And let's do that. And I want to say, what does it look like for me to be available to these other guys that have a $500,000 house? Like, how, how do I do both of What does it look like for me, for our family, and for our church to say, we're a well. We don't build fences. We don't say you're, you're too poor for us or you're too rich for us. We don't say we do outreach towards Park Street. We don't do it towards West Side. Or we do it towards West Side and we don't do it towards Park Street. I don't have answers on any of these things. That's what I'm saying. It's like gumbo. You've got you to find something that you can chew on in the midst of it. But those are the things that I'm trying to wrestle with, and I want y'all to wrestle with as well. It's a very challenging parable if you take it beneath what would I do if I saw somebody beat up on the side of the road. If you take it to who am I stepping over? Who am I walking past? Who am I avoiding? Who are the people who I come into contact with that I either, again, walk past or move to the other side of the road because I don't want them to 
ask anything of me or require anything of me or I don't want to be obligated towards them in any way, either because it makes me nervous or because they're not safe or because I'm too busy or because I just don't know what their needs are and I'm not willing to take the time to figure out because it's not obvious and I can't just hammer a nail. I've actually got to have a conversation. Those types of things. I want you to think about that. So what, what, is it, what is it to inherit eternal life? The, this guy says, love God and love people. And so Jesus says, and here's what it means to love people. That's what this parable is. It's a picture of what it means to love people. It's very practical and it's very gritty. And then he says, and here's what it means to love God. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, remember he's moving. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. So that's a posture of discipleship. Sitting at feet, at someone's feet, is, it's a technical phrase that means she was a disciple of Jesus. But Martha was distracted, or that word means she was pulled away, if you like that. She was pulled away from focusing on Jesus by all of the preparations that had to be made. And they all did have to be made. There's nothing wrong with any of it. So Martha comes to Jesus. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord said, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So this people take this in lots of different directions. I think what we have here simply is Jesus saying Luke is sticking this here to say Jesus just said inherit eternal life, love God and love people. Here's a picture of loving people. Good Samaritan. That is taking a risk. To be available to people in need. That's it. That's what it looks like to love somebody. The Samaritan had everything that this guy needed. He had money. He had bandages. He had oil. He had wine. And so he took care of him. He had a donkey to get him to an end. What he had, he freely gave away to this stranger who he came across in need. That is a picture of what it means to love people. And now here's a picture of what it means to love God. Theopolis. You've forgotten him. He's the one this book is written to. He was raised in the Roman religious world. And in the Roman religious world, everything is quid pro quo with the gods. So in your house, so there's a god for the Bryant house. And they have their own household god. And every day, because Bo is the head of the house, he would offer some form of sacrifice to that god, asking, hey, keep our kids safe, and I hope things go well at work. And he's offering a sacrifice, some, some food, and um, praying asking this God, take care of us. And then there's a public face of Roman religion that has to do with the decisions of the state and the military, but it's the same stuff. It's all based on bringing things to these gods so that when you need them, they'll do good stuff for you. I bring things to the gods. I make sacrifice to the gods so that when I need something, they will reward me. No relationship. It's a, it's a contract. There's stories in Roman literature of them going through this very elaborate festival. And there's a liturgy to it. And the priest forgets two words, literally, two words. And they have to start the entire festival back over because it doesn't work if you miss two words. That's a picture of the way they related to their God. So if you're Theophilus and you hear love God and that's your background, what are you thinking about? Martha, she's it. She's the picture. When you hear love God and you're raised in this religious context that says all the gods want from you is your stuff, 
You do things for them, and then they will do things for you when you need them. You hear love God. What you hear is, I need to do stuff. I need to serve Him. Let's get to work. There's nothing wrong with serving. But ultimately, that's not what God is looking for. He's looking for relationship. He's looking for sons and daughters, not servants and slaves. Mary gets it right. Jesus is in her midst, and so she says, you're more important. This, relationally, my devotion to you is more important than my service for you. Radical concept for Theophilus. And so Luke, he's the only one that records this story. Wants to make sure this Roman background guy gets it. When you hear love for God, I don't want you thinking the way you loved these other gods. It's not about what you bring to them. You can't bring them anything. You go back and read the Old Testament. God says, what can you, I, know, I own everything. What are you going to bring me that I haven't already given to you? When David and, and, and Solomon want to build a temple, God says, what are you going to do? You're going to build a house for me? I don't need that. And so there's this sense in which we don't bring anything to him. What he wants from us, and this is hard for us, what he wants from us is us. Jesus came and died and was raised to life to reconcile us to God. Like that's the grand plan, relationship with us. And we think there's got to be a catch, right? There's something else. We've got to bring something to the table, and it's not. He's just looking for relationship. And so I think that's why that's there. How do I inherit eternal life? You love God and you love people. What does it look like to love people? It means you take a risk to engage with people. You take a risk to offer to people who you see who are hungry and thirsty the good things that God has given to you. What does it look like to love God? It means first you're devoted to him. It's a relationship before it's anything else. So when you hear love God, when I hear love God, what needs to pop into my mind is relationship, time with him. Before service for him. Let's pray. We're running out of time. All right. Let me give you two buckets. And you get to pick. I think it's too much to try to. Want all of it at once. So you get to pick. Love God or love people. Which one do you want to think about? Focus on. Pray about. You can decide. If you don't know which to decide, pick the one that you stink at. We're going to start with loving God. If you're Martha-oriented, if that is your nature, you don't need to hear this as criticism. You can go back and read more about Martha in John 11 and 12, and she's a stud. She just missed it in this one moment. She has insight into who Jesus is, and he reveals things to her that he doesn't reveal to other people. She's the one that he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, that phrase. He told her that one-on-one. So this is not putting down Martha's. Just reminding us, God is looking for sons and daughters, not servants and slaves. As a son or a daughter, you absolutely will live a life of obedience. You will live a life that bears fruit. You will live a life of service, and sometimes it will be hard. But you're doing those things as a son or a daughter. You're doing those things as someone who's first sat at Jesus' feet. And so that's the question. If you're thinking about this whole love God, if that's the bucket that you're going to 
put yourself in this morning, would you say, no guilt, would you say that your life is characterized by sitting at his feet? I'm not asking for seven out of seven days. Three or four days a week, are you spending time in his presence? Maybe you don't have to have an agenda. I don't care if you work through a devotional guide or some scripture reading plan. If those things help you, that's great. But I want to know is, you know how to be friends with people. You've got friends. You know what that's like. Do you have that same attitude towards the Lord? If the answer is no, then let's ask God to cultivate that. So that's my prayer, God, for those in this room. Maybe they're bent naturally towards Martha. They're doers by nature. Maybe it's because of what they've heard in the church or what they've kind of picked up. What you're looking for is people who do the right thing. They're trying to earn your approval or your affection. Working on being a good person. God, I pray that you would begin to show them your desire just to be with them. And that's hard for us to get. Very few relationships that we have are pure. Almost every one of them, it seems like there's some angle. People are getting something from us. And so it's difficult to say with you, it's just pure relationship. You don't get anything out of it. So God, I pray that we would be a congregation of people who know how to sit at your feet. We know how to take walks, not to burn calories, but just to be with you. We know how to read the Bible, not so we can finish it in a year, but so we can hear from you. We know how to pray, not just when there's a crisis, but just as constant communication. We know how to worship, not just in this big room, but personally and privately and by ourselves, God. We know how to be quiet without an agenda, and just be in your presence. So help us with that, God. And I do, I pray for those who are stressed out and burnout who are running so hard and the thought of carving out 15 or 20 minutes they're going you know what I can get done in 15 minutes would you help them to choose the best thing a couple of times this week just two or three times to choose the best thing stay in the bed and pray or have a cup of coffee on the deck and sit before they check their email, before they get the paper, before they start making lunches. Will we know the freedom and the joy and even the refreshment that comes from lives of devotion? Some of you pick the Good Samaritan, the love your neighbor bucket. And God, I confess that's mine and I don't get it. And I can use being an introvert as an excuse or there are all kinds of excuses I can give but the bottom line is I don't know how to do that I don't know what that looks like to live a life that says I'm going to take a risk to engage with whoever I come into contact with who's hungry or thirsty it's easy if it's someone who looks like me if it's somebody that I actually enjoy being around Everybody else, I just assume, step over across to the other side of the road. 
Think about the Samaritan having compassion, which is what motivated you, Jesus. And so I pray for those of us who wrestle with this idea of not who is my neighbor, but being a neighbor. God, would you give us compassion for the people who are in our world? Again, not just the ones who are easy, but everybody. Would you remind us of the good things that you've given to us? Would you give us grace to see where others are hungry and thirsty and not in a condescending or patronizing way, but with humility and love and compassion to give away what you've freely given to us? And maybe as a start, God, I pray, I'm not saying that safety and security is nowhere in the mix, but God, I pray it wouldn't be first. It wouldn't be the first thing that we look at. The first thing we would look at is faithfulness. What are you asking of me? Safety and security would be farther down. God, show us what that looks like in a dangerous world. But you told the story in a dangerous world. God, I pray for families that they would know what does it look like as a family for us to be a well and not a fence. What does it look like for us as a family to give away what you've given to us? I pray as a church, God, that we would know the same thing. God, that we'd know how to be a good neighbor to people who look like us and don't. We'd know how to be a good neighbor to people who need tangible and material help and people who are, seem to have all of that but are spiritually bankrupt. And God, I pray we wouldn't be intimidated by any of those scenarios. That we would recognize that your spirit lives within us individually. And he dwells with us corporately. And so we don't need to be afraid. So God, moving forward, would you speak to us? Would you lead us? Would you challenge us, remind us of this parable? guilt on anybody. I don't want anybody leaving feeling weighed down or condemned. God, I pray what we would hear is you speaking to us, beckoning us forward out of this place of relationship with you saying, come on, let's do this. I came to seek and save the lost and you get to do it with me. I came to make all things new and you get to help All right, we have ministry teams here up in the corner. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on at all. If any of the things that I shared kind of stirred in your heart, we'd love to pray with you about that. And then Bo will dismiss us after this song. You guys can stand up.